What if I were to say to you that I believed that no one could believe in Jesus to come to Jesus by faith and be saved unless God intervened and gave them the ability to do so? What would you think? In other words, what would you think if I stood here and said, I don't believe anyone can come to Jesus and be saved unless God grants them that ability? Maybe even furthermore, what would you do? What would you think? And, and then the next question is, what would you do if you really thought that I really thought that? Now I'd like you to open your Bible to John 6, keeping those questions in your mind. I'm wondering, what would you think? What would you do if I were actually to say that I believe that? Well, let's see what Jesus said in John chapter 6, and then we'll talk a little bit more about it. In John chapter 6, verse 65, we read, John 6, 65, And he, speaking about Jesus, said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Hmm. Well, now I'm actually going to say it. I believe with all of my heart, because I am a Christian, and Christians are supposed to believe what Christ said, that no one can come to Christ unless it's been granted to them by the Father. That's basic Christian doctrine. That's Jesus because Jesus knows that people are so sinful that left unto themselves, they will never do the right thing which is coming to Him as Savior. What's interesting about this, among other things, is as far as wondering what you would do, If I said that, read John 6.66. You know it's a bad verse. It's easy to remember because it's John 6.66. Okay? Look what happens. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They weren't friends with him anymore. They didn't walk with him anymore. They heard this reality, this truth, and what do they do with it? We don't want to be friends with Jesus anymore because that's not what we believe. Huh. Well, I hope you're not like the many disciples. But it is interesting that Jesus, having seen that his sales strategy is a failure, if you will, using some sarcasm, doesn't change the message in hopes that he might keep the the 12 disciples he has left. Look Look what he does do. He just turns the screws even more in verse 67. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? The truth stands. This is true. This is gospel truth. If salvation is all of grace, nothing you do to earn it, and people are sinful, no one comes to the Father. Or no, no one comes to Christ here except the Father gives them the ability to, grants it to them. This is such important because it's gospel importance that Jesus even says to the twelve who are left, what are you going to do with this? He didn't back off. He didn't alter it. Because ultimately at stake is, how is it that people are saved? Are they saved entirely and completely by grace? Is it actually grace, a free gift? Nothing they do to earn it? Or is there some spark of good in them so they can make the good decision and decide to follow Jesus, which is a good decision? Or does God have to do something first? And Jesus makes it clear that God has to do something first. Religious people didn't like this. They really didn't like this. Maybe especially the religious people didn't like this. 
but Jesus made himself clear. Now, sadly, what happens is people are so bugged by this, this reality of we're so sinful, God has to do something to get us to do the right thing. We're so bugged and so bothered by this that we miss the fact that there's good all over this. We all deserve to go to hell. We all deserve to be uh, facing the wrath of God. And yet, if you look at verse 65 and, and, and see the good in there, notice what it says. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. You know, that's what we should be saying is, wow! You know, this is amazing that anyone could make the good decision to go to Jesus. But you know what? It actually can happen if God does something and intervenes. And so instead of being all bugged by it and bothered by it and and offended by it and, and thinking this is so dreadful, I'm saying this is hopeful. If God does something... There can be a solution. And then if you go back earlier to the, to the earlier context of John 6.39, this is, this is good. This is positive. If God does something, it's sure. Look at John 6.39 where it says, And this is the will of Him who sent me that I should lose nothing. This is Jesus talking about His Father. That I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. That is outstanding. You know, God doesn't owe it to anyone, but for those who the Father gives to the Son, the Son will lose none of them. That is radical hope. That is sure hope. That is sure assurance, if you will. Not it all depends on me and me doing something. There's not a lot of hope in that because I may not be very faithful. And so I love Jesus making this point clear. It's true. Everyone is so sinful, no one will come unless God initiates. But you should know that where God initiates and gives them to the Son, there will be no losing them. Never, ever, ever. And we should see those words as great words. This is similar to what happens in Romans chapter 8 or in the book of Romans. So if you turn in your Bibles to Romans 8, we can move past an introduction. But I wanted to hear this from Jesus because in essence we see the same thing from the Apostle Paul. He's an apostle of Christ Jesus, so he teaches the same doctrine. He teaches the same thing. And he is making it clear that while everyone is a sinner, we've learned that chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter. No one deserves to go to heaven. People don't make the right decisions. But because of Christ and His great work on our behalf, and not only that, because God even draws us to the point of believing in the finished work of Christ, so it's all of grace, it's all of God, we can have assurance. We can have true assurance. Because ultimately it depends upon God working according to His plan. And this gives us assurance and security no matter what we face. This is what's happening in Romans 8. Look at Romans 8.29. This is the ultimate insecurity where it says in Romans 8.29, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 30 says, and those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. It's what we've been referring to and what many Christians have referred to over the years is God's unbreakable chain of salvation. You've got these five links. God is the author of each or the creator of each of these links. He is the one who's done it and they're unbreakable. They're unbreakable. It's interesting, according to the context of Romans 8, I think it's all about, all about security, all about assurance. You know, earlier on in chapter 8, chapter 8, verse 1, as a matter of fact, it said, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he starts unpacking that. You know what? We're sure, we're secure, even though we're sinners. It's because of what Christ has done. And that creates a certain level of assurance, which is awesome. But now what he seems to be doing in Romans 8 is, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, he, he, he's digging, 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 so we're actually seeing the rootedness or we're seeing the sure footings of this saving work of Christ. We're seeing all that even goes below the surface. 
you know, you're sure no condemnation because of what Christ has done. You're sure no condemnation because you have believed the truth about the Gospel. But it's as if he's saying, now, now, now let me even go a little deeper. This plan, this saving plan of God goes back to before time began. And God was planning all of this. And so He foreknew. We'll talk about what that means. He predestined. He called. He justified. He glorified. This is even surer, this plan, than we even thought at first. Capital S. Sure. want you to be sure. want you to be secure. want you to know how great God's plan of salvation is. And that's what we're seeing here. As I say sometimes, now we're in the deep end of the pool. We're, we're learning the ultimate reason why all of this is sure, sure and secure. Because you know what? In one sense, I could believe the truth about Jesus on the cross, and that's very good. It's right. It's important. I could believe that if you believe in Him, you'll be saved. <clears throat> but you know what? What if my belief isn't strong enough? Where does the belief come from? He's tracing back, looking at the footings of all of this, saying, you know what? God did all that He did with His Son with you in mind. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it includes this, this whole reality of your life. And that's what we're seeing. In Romans 8, 29, and 30. Well, let's review the first two links of the chain. I'll give you a little bit of new information. So if you were here last time, that's even worth listening again. But let's note that they're all connected. Where, where there is the first one, there is the last one. We're supposed to see all of them together. God doesn't start and then break the chain. This is what He has done. The first chain in this chain of salvation is foreknew. We see it in verse 29. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. We talked last time at length just that, that we would notice what it does say and doesn't say. It doesn't say uh, that He foresaw events or decisions. He foreknew people. And it uses it in the way the Old Testament uses it and the way the New Testament uses it. That God knew people or so-and-so knew someone else. It's affection. It's love. It's care. Amos 3.2 says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. God speaking to Israel. He is omniscient. He knew everybody. And He knew everything about everybody. But He's saying, You only have I known. I set my love upon you in a special way. And so that is how it is used here. That God sets His love upon. That's why many have even said that's a good synonym for those whom He foreloved. Those He set His love upon. The cross-reference and the, the other synonym would be elect or chosen from Ephesians 1. And so it starts before time even begins. And I'm not going to re-preach all of that. Maybe one other cross-reference I didn't mention last time. 1 John 4.19 We love because what? He first loved us. That's just gospel truth. How is it that we now love each other as Christians? How is it that we love God? Well, because He loved us first. The synonym is He foreknew us. And so we praise God for that, that it's His initiating, not ours. My security in Christ is ultimately tied to God's initiating a relationship with me, those whom He foreknew. Now let's move to the second link in the chain, and that is predestined. I know more than one pastor who are friends who have been kicked out of more than one church just for mentioning the name, predestination. So, this is my second service today. Man, I'm... In for it, maybe. I'm thankful to be at a church where I would be fired if I didn't say the word if we were studying Romans. It's right there, isn't it? For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be, Christ might be the firstborn among many brothers. This is not meant to be controversial. This is meant to be great assurance-giving truth. God, those whom He foreknew, He foreloved, He also predestined. He said, this is my destination. The destination is Christ-likeness. 
and I will make sure that everything happens for those whom I have foreknown. I have predestined that they will become like Christ. Which, by the way, gives Him glory and honor when we're made like Him. And so this actually is a doctrine that is exalting to Christ. So let's not fight about it. And let's not say we don't believe it. Because when we say that, we say something that takes away from the glory of Christ. This is a great truth. This is meant to, to encourage us when we're facing the suffering of life, which is Romans 8, the context, which is when we're being persecuted, would also fit the context of Romans chapter 8, when things don't seem to be going right, maybe when I don't seem to feel very strong in my devotion and commitment. You know what? It goes back to God had a plan that started before time began. All right. My feelings are grounded in reality. Not only that, they're grounded in divine decrees that are unbreakable. Yes. Thankful. Thankful. I was particularly encouraged by an illustration of this that I I read just this past week uh, by the testimony of a famous Christian sufferer, if you will, in, in, in our era, Johnny Erickson Tata. Many of you are familiar with her, her ministry that God has given her, and her life. I know I am. Listen to what she says about this doctrine. I cannot begin to express the relief and release I felt as I plunged deeper into this marvelous truth that my diving accident was really no accident at all. Finally, long after I put down the Reformed Doctrine of Predestination, a great book, by the way, The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination. She's talking about it. It's by Lorraine Bettner, the man with the woman's name. That's how you remember that. Long after I put that book down, because remember with her, everybody tried to give her this fix, this kind of fix, that kind of fix to help her through her crisis. And it didn't work because it ultimately wasn't biblical. Long after I put down the Reformed doctrine of predestination, I yielded. I exhaled a long, slow, satisfied breath and relaxed into the sovereign arms of God. If He loved me enough to predestine and die for me, then trusting Him with quadriplegia should be a cinch. End of quotation. I couldn't say that because I haven't experienced what she's experienced and up until this point in my life I've not experienced the kind of physical suffering she has. But I so love it that she says it. And I so love to quote her. Coming to grips with this grand, great reality that God is the author of salvation, that God is sovereign, that God predestines that is really what was balm to her soul God's in charge and he's going to be glorified through all of this that's the right response that's the response that we should have and sadly too many Christians take no comfort in predestination it robs them of joy and ultimately it robs God of glory This is what He's done. It's in the context of Romans 8, which is about your suffering. This is one of those things that's going to get you through. Salvation is all of God. You can't lose it. Now let's move to a third link in this chain. The third link in the chain of God's unbreakable salvation plan is called... Look at verse 30. So we've seen for no, we've seen predestined. Now in verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. He also called. Today we're going to talk about calling primarily. What does it mean in this unbreakable chain for God to foreknow? to predestine, and now to call before He justifies. So in His plan, after He foreknows or foreloves, after He predestines, now He calls, but that's before He justifies and before He glorifies. What what is this? 
What does it mean? What's so good about this? What's so helpful about this? And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. It should be a tremendous source of encouragement and a, and, and a fuel for praise to God from our lives. The first issue that comes up is which kind of calling is this? Because in the Bible, sometimes we have what we can conveniently categorize as a general, <clears throat> a general call. <clears throat> Excuse me. Where God, generally speaking, calls people to repent. Like in Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul says, everyone everywhere should repent. In evangelism, we give the general call because we give it to everyone, everywhere. We give the general call. This is what Jesus was referring to, no doubt, in Matthew chapter 22, verse 14, where He says, For many are called, but few are chosen. It's used in different ways, in different contexts, but He's using it as the general call. And today, if you evangelize the, the hostess at the restaurant or your neighbor or your child or your parent, you are giving the general call. You're saying, believe in Jesus and you will be saved, like in Acts 16. And we tell everyone to do that very thing. There's another kind of calling, and no doubt this is the one he's talking about here. It's a calling that God does internally and it always works. It always brings about the intended result. Theologians call it the effective call. Or if you read older books, like I do at times, it's the effectual call. The effectual call. So today, use the word Ebenezer <laughs> and use the word effectual and it'll be a good day if you talk about what it means. That's no doubt what he's talking about here. Let me show you why we would say that, why I would say that. Those whom he called... Well, that's tied to, in verse 29, those whom He foreknew. And it's tied in verse 29 to those He predestined. And it's tied in verse 30 to those He justified. And it's tied in verse 30 to those who He glorified. This kind of calling is not the generic general call. This kind of calling is the kind that works because it's tied to people who are glorified. It's tied to people who are justified. It's tied to those who've been predestined. It's tied to those who've been foreloved. This is the effectual call of God. This is what the Holy Spirit does in somebody's heart and life. This is the kind that cannot be stopped. Or it wouldn't be in this unbreakable chain. No doubt He's using it in that sense, as is used that way quite often in the New Testament as well. There is no may or may not in this kind of calling. This is the calling that is sure, that is unstoppable, unbreakable. Now let's dig in a little bit. As I said last week, I realize this is theological, um, this is doctrinal, but you should realize this is a church, okay? <laughs> so if you want sports jokes, you can watch ESPN when you go home. Um, that's what we do. That's what we should do. And what we're trying to do is dig into this. So, yeah, we might lose sight of the forest a little bit today because we're looking at the trees. But I will keep coming back to, remember, the big picture is encouragement, security, sureness. And that's why he's telling us about this plan that God has before time begins. He foreloves, he foreknows, he predestines. And then he also calls, and I think we're now we're getting into time now as we know it, justified, glorified. It's all sticking together. What a great God this God is, is what we should be thinking. What I would like to do right now is to look at how calling relates in this timing, in this chain, to justified. So we're looking at the third and fourth link and how they relate. And if we do that, we'll understand calling even better. And we'll be better worshipers of God. How does calling relate to justification? It's important that we look into that because what we're going to end up seeing is this calling idea is a lot like what we learned in John chapter 6. It's talking about this, this reality that, that God has to do something. That God has to be the initiator. That God has to do something first before anything happens on our level. Including faith, I would suggest to you. 
We're going to tease this out and we're going to chase this a little bit so we can understand, how about this? Ultimately, that salvation is of the Lord. All of it. Now, let's talk about justification just for a moment. It's for next time. We need to talk about it a little bit, though, because according to the calendar, today is Reformation Sunday. So, uh, we better talk about justification a little bit or, or we don't qualify as a church. I don't know. <laughs> justification is the fourth link, right? There on the list. To be justified means to be declared righteous. It's a legal term. It means to be declared righteous, to be declared perfect, even though you're not. And if you go back to Romans chapter 3, you see that here's the first time we we see how justification or the, the justifying work of Christ is applied to sinners. Romans is a lot about justification, that, that, that Christ lives a perfect life, a righteous life. He dies a perfect death, satisfying the righteous judgment of God on behalf of sinners, that He rises again from the dead. His work is a righteous, perfect work, and we need it to be justified. That's what Romans has been about. We, we really need Christ's work to be justified. But in Romans chapter 3, it spells it out with a certain phrase how it is we can be justified. It says in Romans 3.28, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And I really want to emphasize that for a spell, for a bit. In the link, in, in, in the linking of the chain, foreknown, predestined, called, justified, justification happens when you believe. If Romans teaches anything, it teaches justification is by faith and by faith alone, right? Over and over and over again, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Romans 5.1, it's all over the place. And we would go to the wall for that. We, we, we love the reality of justification. It's Christ's work. And we need Christ's work. The only way to get to heaven is to have righteousness, to have perfection. It's, it's the one and only requirement that we don't have. And so God loved us enough to send His Son to live a righteous life, to fulfill the law for us, to satisfy His just righteous requirements for us, to do everything necessary. How is Christ's work applied to us? Not by being an American, not by being a member of the human race, by believing, by having faith, dependence. Those are all synonyms. I'm going to trust in Christ as my substitute. He did it for me, and then God declares me righteous. I'm ready for heaven. We talked about this at length, and we'll talk about it next time at length. It's vital. But what I just brought up that I want to draw your attention to again and again this morning, it comes to us by faith. It comes to us by faith. And some of you, perhaps, think that faith is what you do as your part and God rewards your faith and saves you. Most of you here today would say you believe in salvation only by grace. I know that. I'm glad. Good job. (laughs) But you've not really thought this through and you think perhaps that the faith that you exercise to apply the work of Christ, for lack of a better term, is your work. Is what you, is what you bring to the table. It's the good thing that you do. And by the way, it is good to believe in Jesus. But what we need to work on here, roll our sleeves up a little bit is, where does that come from? Here's my big question. I'll probably bring it up again. Do you really believe in salvation by grace alone? That it's all of God and that the only thing you bring to the table is the problem. Okay? I'm not trying to be a bully at all, but I imagine some of you say you believe in salvation by grace alone, but you don't really. Because you think somehow faith is what you did first and God responded. 
You need to think about that. Jesus is the one who said, no one comes unless the Father gives it to him. He needed to emphasize that. He was talking to people who at least would have said they believe in salvation by grace. No doubt they would. But he refines the focus to make sure. And he smokes them out as people who don't really believe in salvation only by grace. Because he knew how sinful people were. That means God has to do something first even before they come to Him in faith. That's what I'm getting at. Faith, justification, is by faith, and only by faith. We'll talk about that next time. But where does the faith come from? Is it our good work that we do, in and of ourselves, that then merits our salvation or our justification? Turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2. Now, for some of you, you're thinking, you don't need to spend all this time. I already get it, Pastor. Great. Thank you for loving everyone else who's here who needs a little help. We've got to make sure we understand this, that it really is all of grace. Even the faith is a result of God's grace that we would believe in to be justified. In Ephesians 2, we're going to see that there's no possible way, just as Jesus would have taught, that sinners would ever, 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 ever do the right thing. Right? And while you're there, just even remember Romans. Maybe I should have stayed in the context of Romans. Romans chapter 3. Romans 3.12 says, There is none who does good. There's not even one. Yes, there's relative good, but there's not true ultimate good. There's not even one who does good. Now you tell me. Is it good to believe in Jesus? Yes, it is. If not, let's meet afterward. It's good to believe in Jesus, and yet Romans 3 says, a book about the gospel, no one does good. You see, we even need God to intervene and grant us the ability to believe. And I would suggest to you, if you dig, that's what is happening in that unbreakable chain with calling. Calling is going to bring about the faith that's going to bring justification. But let's see what, what kind of condition we're in. This is a passage familiar to you if you've been here very long because we go over this uh, multiple times. Ephesians 2, 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. He's not talking to people who were, who were physically dead and raised again. He's talking to people about their spiritual condition before they became Christians. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. See, they're alive. They're not, this is talking about spiritual realities. And the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So it's interesting. They're spiritually dead and they're alive. They're physically alive, right? It's a bad picture. It's an ugly picture. This is, this is why, too, when you hear an evangelist say, God has thrown out the life raft. And now it's up to you to reach out and grab it. That's the picture of the biblical gospel. Well, it is true. You do need to. The general call, if he's giving the general call, it's true. You need to grab the life raft. You do need to believe. The problem is, you can't. Because you're not drowning. You have drowned. Right? You're at the bottom of the ocean. Bloated. You know? Rigor mortis. The urchins are eating you, you know? Actually, it's not the best illustration because Ephesians 2, 1 talks about the living dead. So, spiritually you're dead, but you're actually alive. So actually, since it's Halloween time, I'll mention this. This is a return of the living dead. This is the night of the living dead, you know? More brains, ah, you know? That's who we are spiritually, right? You're living your life, but you are a bad, corrupt person who doesn't do good. And so God is not saying, hmm, yeah, I see that they have the goodness in their hearts to believe in my Son. 
You would never come to that conclusion from Ephesians. Never. But God intervenes. Look at verse 4. So we read 1, 2, and 3, and then I love verse 4. But God, who's the initiator? Who does something? Who steps in? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, He says. Isn't that awesome? But God, and then even look, I'm just going to underline those two statements. But God, and then toward the end of verse 4, made us alive together with Christ. Dead spiritually, but God makes us alive. And then he says, right at the very end, by grace you have been saved. That's what salvation by grace alone is. God makes us alive. I think he's talking about the same issue of calling. God does this. God brings new life. You know, this is why if you keep reading, you get down to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. You know, in one sense, shame on us if we ever read Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 without thinking at least about Ephesians 2, 1, 2 and 3. Because when he says what he says in 8 and 9, it makes all the sense in the world if you've just read 2, 1, 2 and 3. And he says, for by grace, he's talking to Christians, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, even grammatically. Not even the faith is something that you mustered up on your own. You've been saved by grace through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Even the faith. So that no one would boast. Yeah, Jesus did all that and I believed. Like it's a work. It's all grace. I was dead. dead. Now we're understanding salvation by grace alone. Now we're understanding John uh, John 6.44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Yeah. Indeed, salvation is of the Lord. All of it. He gets all the credit for it. Please don't misunderstand. This would be another good topic for another time. You do have to believe. And if you're saved, you have believed. But it's not a work that you somehow did in and of yourself because you were good enough to at least do that much. You must believe. But where does the belief come from even? Ephesians 2, 8, 9 will tell us it comes as a gift from God. The end of Philippians would tell us the same thing. It's been granted to you to believe. Free gift. And so let's remember that because we're in jeopardy. I know we're in jeopardy because of the conversations that I have of thinking we believe it's all that God has done, grace alone, but we don't really mean that because we think we have cinched the deal with our good believing. Even the faith has to come from Him. There's a great biblical illustration of this that's not even talking about salvation, but it makes a great point, and that's the raising of Lazarus. I'll ask you to go ahead and turn there. John chapter 11. There's another good illustration as well that I'll share with you, but let's look at this one. If you've done any thinking about this very much, done much reading about this, everyone always goes to this passage. I think it's a helpful one. It's not talking about salvation, though. It's talking about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, physically. But it's quite helpful, because if you were dead in trespasses and sin spiritually, but God, right, intervenes, it looks a lot like somebody who's physically dead being raised from the dead. God has to do it. So Jesus gives Lazarus the effectual call. But He doesn't give Lazarus the effectual call for salvation. He gives him the effectual call for physical life. But it's a great picture. John chapter 11, verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. Who has King James? Anybody? By this time he... Old King James, right? He stinketh. That's a good one. That's the other word for the day. Ebenezer. (laughs) Effectual stinketh. All right. (laughs) 
By this time, there is an odor, for, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if I believed, you would see the glory of God? So, so they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe and that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, and his hands and feet were bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. It's a great picture. Someone has said, if he wouldn't have used the word Lazarus, everybody who would ever died would have raised from the dead. Because Jesus is the God-man, and when He says, rise, it is effectual. It does happen. It's a great picture. So in the spiritual realm, Pat Abendroth, speaking of myself, dead in trespasses and sins. And it wasn't that Jesus came on my behalf, lived on my behalf, died on my behalf, rose again from the dead on my behalf, and then God was just waiting to see if I would have the goodness to do the good thing, and that's to believe in Him. If He foreknew me and predestined me, He called me, which is going to then draw me, right? It's then going to give me the ability to believe, which is then going to lead to my justification. You don't need to take the time to go there, but a, a biblical illustration, not just of the physical realm, but actual, will be Acts 16.14. We talked about this last Sunday night. Acts 16.14 with Lydia. Paul preaches the gospel. Lydia hears and listen to this. Acts 16.14. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to, or as the NASB says, to respond to what was said by Paul. That's effectual calling. The Lord opened her heart to respond. God had to bring about a change in Lydia's heart to get her to respond positively to the message. You could also jot down 1 Corinthians 2.14. In 1 Corinthians 2.14 it says, regarding the unbeliever, he is not able to understand. Can't comprehend and connect the dots and truly understand and believe the gospel. He cannot, it says, I, I love the doctrine of calling. I love effectual calling. Yes, it assaults my pride because it tells me that I, I wasn't good enough to believe on my own. But that's kind of the idea of grace. I love this reality because according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, I couldn't. God is so kind for, for, for working through the power of His Spirit, no doubt, to bring this about. My security is tied to it ultimately. I love 1 Peter 1.3. Why don't you go ahead and turn there. It'll be the last passage we look at. 1 Peter 1.3. 1 Peter's toward the end of your Bible. I guess I, ch I chose this one on purpose because let's get a sampling from the Gospels, from Jesus' own mouth. Let's hear from the Apostle Paul. Let's hear from the Apostle Peter. Let's get the flavor and idea that this isn't just one of those things taken out of context. I'm not one to gripe about these truths because I know I couldn't be saved. How crazy would that be? 1 Peter 1.3 is awesome. Here's the right response too, by the way. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Heard that before? That's Paul in Ephesians 1 talking about the same stuff. He's blown away by this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to His great mercy. And here's what I underlined and emboldened. He has caused us to be born again. Wow, you know? Peter understood total depravity. Peter understood this, this reality that, that apart from God doing this, no one will come to Jesus. He was a good follower of Jesus in that sense. But I love what he says. He has caused us to be born again. I say, hallelujah. Yeah. Because if he hadn't caused me to be born again, I would have never been born again. Now, I realize now, all of a sudden, we start getting huffy and puffy about it, you know? Well, you know, what about my free will? 
you know, sexual calling. What about my free will? Cause me to be born again. Well, what about it? What about it? If you read Romans chapter 6, it says your will was enslaved to sin. You know where your free will gets you? You stay down in the pit of depravity and you're just free to sin it up. Why do we want to just clutch this reality and say, oh, free will, free will, free will? It's like John Owen said years and years ago, the idol of free will. You, you don't even want it. Because what it is, according to Romans 6, is your enslavement to sin. I am so glad that God caused me to be born again. Can you imagine Lazarus, just to borrow the physical illustration again? I wouldn't build my whole doctrine and argument on this, but can you imagine? Raised from the dead, Lazarus, come forth! You know, and he's still bound and gagged. What about my free will? I didn't want to come to life. You know, that is about as dumb as you get. He was given new life. No doubt he was happy. Who wouldn't be? We're enslaved to sin. Dead in trespasses and sins. Night of the living dead. That's you, spiritually. And God works in your heart, violating your will, because it's against your natural desire. What a great, gracious God. Even as we read in that passage, it says, according to His great mercy. God is so merciful that He intrudes. Well, that's not the God I believe in. Well, yeah, you're right. It's not the God you believe in, but it's the God of the Bible. It's the God who looks a lot like God, who is powerful and mercy, merciful and gracious, and who acts to save sinners who could never save themselves. I just urge you, pastorally, get over it. Let it go. Read John 6. You don't want to be identified with those disciples. John 6.66. Probably mumbling all the way down the road. Violates my doctrine of free will. <laughs> we'll start a new church ourselves. Free will church. What is the deal? This is meant to be encouraging. This is meant to be great, gracious. It just doesn't make any sense to say this isn't good. How is it that I could ever be justified? Well, I'm justified by faith. But, but where does that even come from? It comes from divine calling. It comes from God doing something. Now, earlier I said, we'll end on this. Do you really believe in salvation by grace alone? It's really an important matter. Do you really? Let's think about it. If everyone is a sinner, Romans 1, 2, and 3, to the point where it says, no one does good, no, not one. Ephesians chapter 2, dead in trespasses and sins. What makes the difference, ultimately, between the saved and the unsaved? Something that God does first? Or something that you do? Because somehow you have it in you to do it. You see, how you answer that question really reveals whether or not you believe in salvation by grace alone. And it really does indicate whether or not you would have stayed with Jesus. And they went on to say, you have the words of eternal life. If you're that kind of person, or you're the kind of person who takes your ball and goes home, because you don't really believe in salvation by grace alone. I want you to believe in salvation by grace alone. It's the gospel. 
It's what gives God all of the glory. It's ultimately, too, what gives you really, not that this is my ultimate agenda, but it gives you the peace in life that you do need. It does give you the assurance and security when you look at the unbreakable chain and you say, oh, look at the chain. This is God's plan. You know what? Ultimately, what has been done in Christ Jesus has been personalized for me because God had a plan for me because apart from that plan, I would never be saved. This is good and right and should cause us to want to sing. Cause us to want to bless God as Peter does. When we sang that song earlier, Come Thou Fount, I like that line that said, Jesus sought me when a stranger. You know, you'll start singing that kind of stuff in songs. And you'll start singing it not just because we've been singing it, but you think, you know what, that's right. He sought me when a stranger. He came after me because He's merciful and gracious, because I was going the wrong way and I would have kept going the wrong way. What a God. It's no wonder the Bible says multiple times, salvation is of the Lord. It really is. It really is. My great desire and prayer is that you really believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone, because it means you really get the gospel. It's really all of Him. And He gets all of the praise for it. Deep end of the pool stuff. Got to roll up our sleeves a little bit. Staring at a couple trees here. But if it's for this purpose, it's worth it. It's totally worth it. Pray with me if you would. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Father, we bless Your name for being such a merciful and powerful God, so as to work on our behalf so that we might love you because you've loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.